morning our study begins in Hebrews 12 and verse 5. Now as you can see, the writer has spent quite a bit of time on this matter of faith in God. And he, his admonition is that in chapter 12 is because we're uh, uh, because we're compressed about with such a greater cloud of witnesses that we saw in chapter 11 all them heroes of faith then let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us and then let us run with patience uh, the race that is set before us as we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. After all, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and then we come to verse 5 where he admonishes them in regard to allowing the Lord to chasten them, to get after them, uh, to correct them, to instruct them in their walk. And ye have forgotten the exhortation, he says, verse 5. Uh, and he quotes from the Old Testament that they'd forgotten about evidently. Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Alright, so uh, uh, this is a quotation from Proverbs 3 and verse 11. God wants to teach his people about uh, regimented life according to to his plans and that's what the Christian does he, le he leads a regimented life uh, like a soldier does according to God's plans another version reads that God wants to chasten his sons the uh, NIV says you've forgotten the words of encouragement that addresses you as sons my son do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Now, a son may think uh, parental chastening is punishment, especially if a switch is used. That's true. But look at the root idea of the word chasten, and it means to make chaste. In other words, it means to make pure and holy by the removal of dross. And that's where we get this concept of... Uh, gold being uh, becoming of extreme value when it goes through the furnace the fires of the furnace and the dross is rendered off and so that is the purpose God has in mind persecution will come and though uh, and through it God can accomplish some good purposes because he's able to take those things and turn them into good for us. That's Romans 8, isn't it? 
Suffering this present time, not worthy to be compared with the glory that we'll receive. Uh, God has a way of turning those bad things into good things for us. God does not cause, uh, 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 he does not uh, cause uh, the opposition that we're up against. He don't cause it. He don't, he's not out to get you. Man has has been at free will to build this world as he wanted. And God's been admonishing him all the way. Don't do that. It ain't no good. Told Hitler and those Germans over there. Don't do that. It ain't no good. It ain't the way to go. And they just kept on plowing. Even though they went to church and sang over the day of Jesus every Sunday. Millions of those Germans done that. But yet, in their political life, and their real life, they hollered, Heil Hitler. We're doing the same thing over here. Uh, that's why Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 6, that you have sitting before you the, uh, the opportunity to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, that hand of direction, that hand of counseling, that hand of uh, a father's hand, that scolds, that leads, directs. And so uh, God's not to be seen as causing the opposition that we face in life. Even if he has some purpose to bring about through it, he don't cause it. God is not up there just striking us with electricity. That's what we think sometimes. Oh, look out, he'll send the bolt down and get you. God is not that. You don't learn that from God and that that's how he is. <clears throat> so it's not he that will lay hands on his people. He is not out to hurt them. We got to get that through because it's it's so ingrained in our culture. Uh, we we see it every day. Somebody thinks and mentions that God's going out to get you in some way. He's not. He's out to save you. He's trying his best to get your attention to save you. If Christians understand what God can and will do through it all, they can endure the stress and they will come out pure after it's over. They may lose the physical battle, but they win a beautiful battle through it all. There are some very important lessons to be learned. In the first place, it gives confirmation of sonship. Look at verse 5. Confirmation, my son. God addresses us as sons, and He admonishes us: don't be uh, slight, don't uh, don't uh, make light of the Lord's discipline, uh, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you. <coughs> said a minute ago, uh, they may lose the physical battle, but they win a beautiful battle through it all. You go talk to people like Clay Thompson, <coughs> who, <coughs> the chaplain in the prison system in Texas, wrote a book called The Meanest Man in the Penal Institutions of Texas. 
And here was a man who lost the physical battle. He was in prison for life for murder. He shot three men, I believe it was, when he was 15 years old in a gun battle, and he went to, he was sentenced to life. But because of the hardships that he went through, uh, because he lost the battle, the physical battle, he won much more than that through what he suffered because he come to meet God. Nobody could chase him, uh, Clive Thompson. The warden had tried every way in the world and the chaplain had to get his attention. They couldn't. While he was in prison, he killed uh, one guard and he killed a, pri a prisoner in there. He was a hard man. And the uh, warden told him, said, because you're so hard and nobody can do anything with you, we're going to put you in a cell in the basement of the prison by yourself. And uh, we're going to treat you like, like the animal that you are. And they did. And you know the rest of the story. He, he come in confrontation with God. That was the best thing that could ever happen to Clyde Thompson. But it was the worst thing that could happen to him according to physical uh, earthly understanding because it converted him. <coughs> All right, so there's uh, some of the lessons we learned in the first place. Uh, verse 5, give confirmation of sonship. My son, uh, we're God's son. we got problems, and he's willing to deal with us as a father and does a son. Verse 6 and 7. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. When hard times come, recognize that it's for uh, dip, discip, discipline. Uh, God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Now in these verses, Christians learn that they have a heavenly father that is concerned about us in the same way that our physical fathers were about us when we were young. And so we have our dual parentage. But just as a father that is really concerned about the maturity the integrity and the discipline of his son, that is a father that will correct his children if he's concerned about it. That is a father that will impose chastisement when it is necessary. And the writer says if you're without uh, that discipline, then that must mean that there's no father that really cares about you or for you. Because an undisciplined child is going to develop into a brat. That is a problem both to the family and to society. He will not abide by the laws either of God or of man. If a child doesn't learn respect for 
father's law in the home. He who grow up not learning respect and have no respect for the laws of the land, and he go to prison. And he also have no respect for the laws of God, because he never was taught it at home. And that boy wind up in hell. Chances are. And so if a father loves his son, he, like Proverbs says, he'll beat him many times. Many times. The more hard-headed that son is, the more you beat him. Well, that's understood. That's clear. So God is testing his people, is what we're studying about here. Uh, treating his people as sons and is training them for the greater life. And so his discipline is for your benefit. It's not that he's out to hurt you or anything. He's designed a life out here that you're facing uh, that has certain guidelines in it. You walk his way or you're going to get hurt. And it's the laws of life that's doing it to you. Clyde Thompson couldn't blame God for him killing those men that put him in prison for life. Wasn't God's fault. God didn't do it. But God took an ugly situation, uh, a very depressed situation, a situation that actually ended Clyde's life upon the earth, his happiness upon the earth and turned it into the joys of what God has to offer. And he come to see the peace of God. And uh, he come to praise God for his many years in prison and in the isolation of uh, solitary, solitary, solitary confinement. <clears throat> and so... Uh, so a father that's concerned about us in the same way that our physical fathers were about us when we were young. And so we have our dual parentage. Uh, verse 8. If you are not disciplined, and in the parentheses it says, and everyone undergoes discipline. Everyone does. <clears throat> Then you are an illegitimate children and are not true sons. The King James says you're bastards. A bastard is one who has no father. Often when Christians suffer, in confusion they ask this question, does not God love us anymore? Is that why we're suffering? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Discipline is an expression of true love on the part of a caring father, and the lack of it would indicate that the father does not care how his son acts or grows up. And we've seen the selfish side of fathers that didn't give a damn what happened to their boys and girls. They just fed them because they had to and had a place for them to sleep and laughed at their calamities, didn't instruct them didn't teach them, uh, didn't correct them in love, just let them grow up. Well, that's the way weeds grow up, isn't it? 
<clears throat> so such would give the impression that such a child was illegitimate. He didn't have a father. Even though he had a father, he didn't have a father. Because a father uh, <clears throat> relates to a husband uh, in that home. And the word husband in the, in the Greek is house binder, home binder. Fathers, that's your responsibility to bind up your home in love and bind it up in discipline to lead that home, to direct that home. Fathers nowadays, most of them just see that their obligation is to bring home a paycheck and they'll go to tavern and drink all night and throw the check down and what's left of it uh, to the wife and the kids they don't care about the whole family. They're not husbands. That woman does not have a husband. She might have said, I do, uh, in a marriage ceremony, but she didn't have a husband because a husband is a house binder. He binds things together. He sees to the physical and the spiritual needs of that family. He's a leader. <coughs> Uh, verse 9, Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? It's quite a contrast between the Father's spirits and the Father of a physical life. It's just for a short period of time. And that's the contrast being drawn there in verse 9. Uh, <clears throat> we revere our physical fathers because they gave us corrective training. And we come to eventually see it as corrective training. Uh, someone once told a story of a man that was uh, in a rush to get home to see his father before he died so he could thank him one more time for all the whoopings that he got. Because as he got older, he come to realize that father loved him dearly. <clears throat> and so, because our physical fathers gave us corrective training, then let us revere our heavenly father for his parental concern for our spiritual well-being. One of the greatest fruits of proper discipline is that of a life of life. Evidently, the writer is discussing spiritual life in God. Verse 10. <clears throat> Our fathers disciplined us for a while as they <coughs> thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And so his interest in discipline us is for our good. <clears throat> now our earthly fathers chasing us for a few days. And so 
Our Heavenly Father will chasten us for a few days. But the point is that it produces eternal rewards. Because He wants us to share in His holiness. Without that holiness, no one will see the Lord. And that's what verse 14 ahead of it says. <coughs> and of course, don't go wild on that. Don't go to thinking in legalistic terms because we're also going to see ahead of us that the Lord made us holy when he died for us. And we walk in that holiness. We learn of that holiness through discipline, through study, and we develop in that holiness. God allows it for our eternal profit while our earthly fathers did it for our physical temporary profit. God is concerned in the long-term results. He's concerned in the profit that will be eternal in nature. It's really amazing when you consider the importance that men in this earth, men and women, put on their children going to school. Oh, you've got to learn a good education so you can make a good living and you can be happy with money rolling in. Well, naturally, we live down here. We've got to learn how to make a living. If we're, if we're a farmer, we've got to learn how to farm. If it's a welder, you've got to learn how to weld. Uh, but our emphasis is always on the temporary. Most people don't see and put no emphasis at all on the spiritual. And the proof of that is, boy, they have a fit if their children don't go to college and is, is uh, skipping out of school. But in church, they don't give a whip whether they go or not. In fact, the parents teach them not to go. The parents teach the children early. Oh, Ma, didn't only go this morning. I'm kind of tired and I've had a rough week making all this money and, and uh, taking all these blessings from God. But I ain't got nothing to give him, so forget it. Kids pick up on that right quick. Little kids do. You go ahead and show God that you're not willing to walk in his holiness, and you'll not see God. That's a fact. That's what he says. Without the holiness, no one will see the Lord. Verse 14. All right, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. We've all known people in this life that uh, the troubles of life hit them the same as they do us, but they seem to endure with a smile. So in the final analysis, this kind of discipline will produce for us the peaceful fruit, fruits of righteousness. The writer states the obvious. Discipline is not pleasant, he says. But the end result is that which authenticates its validity. 
All men need training in the ways of righteousness and peace. That's why we're here this morning, isn't it? You know, there's people that actually think that they're a blessing to God. Isn't that ridiculous? There's people that think if they show up in services, boy, I really did God a favor. He was glad to see my face. He don't see it often because I'm busy in this world, but once in a while he can see my, and aren't I? Boy, ain't I something. <coughs> and I helped an old lady across the street. Boy, did I really do something. Verse 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Now, therefore is the wherefore, uh, based on the wherefore that went before. It's a conclusion. He's saying, now that you understand why God chastens you, it's for your benefit. He wants you to learn to walk in His holiness uh, and walk with Him. And therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be uh, disabled, but rather get healed. And so you have a responsibility there. Uh, this is a quotation that comes from Isaiah 35, <coughs> verse 3 and 4. It is almost a verbal quotation of that context which builds out of the beautiful promises God, which God made about the new way that Messiah would inaugurate. The new way. <coughs> the way of grace and truth. That's what John said when he introduced Jesus in John 1.17. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad you're not under law? Mercy sakes. One violation condemns. Serious thing. Alright, in verse 8 he will say that uh, there will be a highway and away, verse 8 in uh, Isaiah uh, 35. A highway, and it is a highway of holiness. And so the writer says, stay on that way. Set your goals. Keep your aim. Keep Jesus in your focus and walk toward him with conviction. And the latter portion of the citation there in Isaiah uh, or in this uh, in this verse here that we're studying, verse 12 and 13. The latter portion of it is taken from Proverbs 4 and verse 25. In regard to the straight level paths make for smooth, safe traveling. And they do. And so, uh, like it says, uh, Make level paths for your feet there in verse 12 and 13. All right, he continues here uh, in the next verses uh, as he 
it continues a discussion on faith. The writer's been really given a lot of attention to faith because he understands it as the ingredient that is able to ignore the external pressures and to maintain commitment toward the invisible realities of God's dealings with his people. It's difficult for us to ignore the external because we're so conditioned by things that happen to us, by things we see. We tend to be afraid of things we see, and yet the writer assures us that there are unseen realities. And we've talked about those unseen realities. We've discussed it in terms that we can get a hold of it. God is on the other side and all them angels that we can't see. They're on the other side of that curtain on the stage of life. And they have their work that they do by the minute, by the second as it were, in God's, of God's concern for you and I. They're out there working for us. Now, one thing that God won't allow us to be tempted above that we're able to bear but will with the temptation give us a way of escape. There's things that happen in our lives that we don't know why uh, unless we walk by faith. And we know that God is there continually. I don't have anything to worry about. I don't have anything to worry if the, if the Russians or the Chinese come over here and take this country over. I don't have anything to worry about. They'll see me right away. There's no threat to them. They'll see me as, and like my dad said, you run up and salute them. Sir, do you need a good welder? Because who do I care who I serve in this world? I'm going to serve some man. I'm somebody's slave. I have been for 83 years. I'm going to serve somebody. If you work for yourself, you're still a servant, aren't you? You still got to serve somebody. Does it matter to you? I mean, look what we've been putting up with in America. In America, Is China going to be worse? Is Russia going to be worse? It doesn't matter. Men cause problems whether they're in America or China. My job is to serve God like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel, in the book of Daniel, they didn't worry about the circumstances. They leaned heavily on God. And that's what they told the king. The king, in his pride, he said, Who's going to deliver you out of my hand? And they said, Well, God is able. But what he does, what he doesn't. Let us make one thing clear. We will not bow. We will not bend to your God. And by God's will, we won't burn. And they didn't. God's looking out for us. But there's things, there's powers that's working for us beyond the veil of physical sight. These balls in our head, these eyeballs, are limited to see only the tangible, the physical. This book is what gives us insight into what's really going on in the world. And behind the curtain. And so, so the writer assures us that there are unseen realities. God is ever-present, though you cannot see him. His hand is with his people. 
his hand of action, his hand of justice, his hand of correcting things and disciplining things. That's why he tells you don't worry about these governments and things because vengeance belongs to me and I'll be the one that repays, saith the Lord. So we don't have to worry about saddling up and putting all these guns together and all this ammunition, trailer loads of it, and going against the enemy. I've told groups of men before, in a funny way, laughing about it, that uh, I don't know why these gun shops are pushing these clips that hold uh, 30, 40, 50 rounds. Now, there's nothing wrong in having them. If you like to shoot that many, that's fine. But don't buy them thinking you're going to withstand the enemy because when the enemy comes, whether it's China or Russia or America government, they're going to blow your little butt off the scene. You might luckily get two shots off before they end you. So all you need is about two shots in your rifle. <laughs> but vengeance belongs to God, and he makes that very clear to you and me. It's not ours to take vengeance. It's not ours to right wrongs out here. It's ours to preach the gospel of peace to whoever will receive it. Uh, so his hand is with his people. The Apostle Paul uh, stressed that the importance of building upon this one conviction in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 14. He tells us that our outward physical man is decaying. He's getting old and decaying, slowing down. But simultaneously, the inward man, the spiritual man, is being renewed day by day. He is uh, gaining in vigor because his faith is gaining momentum for him. And uh, though externally he is enduring pressures, the apostle tells us, that such temporary affliction is really producing for a disciplined man as an eternal weight of glory. So, uh, growing faith produces uh, benefits that far outweigh any of the suffering that could be laid upon us. While he says we look not at things that are seen, but at things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen are eternal. Now, as we continue in chapter 12, the writer draws some contrasts and he builds into the reader's important concepts about the externals. Uh, externals have to do with the uh, appetites of the physical body, but also the eternal manifestation of their faith. It is the internal soul of a man that really counts. So minister uh, first of all to the inter internal. It is easy for man to be manipulated by felt needs. Felt needs are those that respond to the physical senses, the animal appetites. 
one of them felt needs is on Sunday morning. Well, I've had a rough week. I don't see any need to go to church this morning. I've had a bad week. I just need to rest today and have my beer and watch sports. Not being sarcastic, just trying to be as real as I know how. And yet there are other needs of a spiritual nature that are not felt through the senses. They are understood through the mind. God appeals to the reasoning of the mind through his revelation. And so we know that the spiritual being is there. And the spiritual being has needs. And so the writer tells us to be sure that we stay away from the manipulative forces of the external, but be molded by them to build character, vigor, and strength, which develops the spirit side of man. So let's venture in here to verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Live in peace with all men. Like I told that big mouth sergeant in Korea one time, that Korean that I'm supposed to shoot on the other side of that no man's land. If I could meet him, he'd probably be my friend and I'd be his. It's these old men in these countries that set the young man on the battlefield with this uh, ridiculous idea that he's fighting for peace. When we went up against uh, the, uh, the Vietnamese <laughs> whistle we're fighting for peace world peace those were just poor people they're trying to raise rice and raise a family and make a living they had something to fight for and they won didn't they do you know that we supported the, the French I think it was over there for for 20 years, we paid the war bill for 20 years. They fought it, but we paid it. Did you know that? And when they got surrounded up there in Hanoi on one occasion, those little farmers liked to destroy them. And they saw the handwriting on the wall, it wasn't worth it, and they were losing. So they, uh, the French dropped out. And guess what? America stepped up to the plate. Why, we'll show the world. And we went over there. And we fought them for how many years? And we finally had to pull out our tail between our legs and they was uh, killing us as we were trying to get aboard the plane to fly out. Yeah. And so I'm of the mindset to be at peace with all men. If at all possible. It's not always possible, but they will need a good welder even though they don't like me. I'm sure they will. 
All right, so uh, in uh, what we studied earlier in this chapter, it was mentioned that the Romans are coming, and they will make no distinction between Jew and Jew. In other words, a Jew that believes in Christ or a Jew that does not believe in Christ uh, to the Romans makes no difference. You see why the Lord told the Christian to run? He wasn't being a coward. He was being a realist that knew that when the Romans' hatred exploded on the Jews, it didn't matter whether he was a Christian or not. <laughs> because he was a Jew, he was a dead man. The Romans, uh, the Roman is going to persecute all of them, Christian and those who were not Christian. So the writer insists, live in peace. Christians are not a part of that warfare. That's not a part of our doing. They rather pursue personal holiness. Be holy, that's what it says. That's an imperative command. It is imperative because without it, no one will see the Lord. Uh, then he proceeds in verse 14 to give some warnings that grow out of some very significant scriptures in the Old Testament. Verse 15, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Uh, there's the uh, there is a peril. The grace of God is available and man can enjoy it for a season and then lose it, can't he? You can fall from grace, can't you? That's what it says. That's the warning that it has. He can miss it completely. Uh, those that have been sanctified uh, once and are cleansed by the blood of Jesus by turning away from him can be defiled once again and lost. And so he pleads that no bitter root grow up. This scripture uh, comes from uh, Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18 where we have the covenant of, uh, of Moab. Uh, what was uh, called the covenant of blessing and cursing that began in chapter 28 through 29 and 13, uh, 30. Uh, there, God gave his blessing to those that keep his law and pronounced curses upon those that violate it. That is the context from which this citation is delivered by the Hebrew writer. It could happen to any person who turns away from the living God God said, you walk in my ways and I'll bless you. You walk contrary to me and I'll curse you. Has God designed life to do that? Now you might think that you're smart enough to avoid that, but you're not. Look at the world and its severe, etc., and headaches that it has daily. And you have friends, you have relatives, and all they can talk about is if they're not walking with God, they're talking about their uh, migraine headaches. Thank God. Because God designed this world where you're not going to escape. You either walk uh, well like uh, the Lord told the Apostle Paul in Acts 9. 
it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The pricks were sharpened uh, spikes that were mounted behind the plow, or in front of the plow. And the ox would pull the plow, or if he had a fit and went to kicking at those at the plow back there, he just blooded his hawks, that's all he done. And that's why he, the Lord told Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. God has set life up with pricks, uh, with goads. <laughs> you kick at it, it, it'll just hurt you. You're not going to get away with it. So that is the challenge um, the writer presents in this context. What does it mean to be defiled? It means to lose your holiness. He had commanded them to be holy. Christ has made them holy by the blood of his sacrifice, and he does not want them to be defiled and lose their holiness again. If they did, they would lose their relationship with Christ. Verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now there is really no indication that Esau was sexually immoral. The Greek word used there is P-O-R-N-O-S, pornos. And it can be defined as any sexual deviation. But it is also used to speak of anyone who is guilty of spiritual adultery. And that happens when a man who is uh, in covenant relationship with God becomes an idolater. Such is called spiritual adultery. Quite possibly this is the intent of the writer here in Hebrews. And this is a pathetic episode uh, that's recorded in Genesis 27 and verse 30. There was the encounter between Jacob and Esau. Jacob offered Esau a bowl of soup in exchange for his birthright. Esau was such a sensual person in his hunger, his animal appetites, he did, he did the deep, uh, deeply profane thing of accepting the offer, a bowl of soup. He traded the sacred for the profane. That is the reason he's called immoral. He simply prostituted the spiritual for the physical. He gave up the lasting for the temporary. He gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. He gave up the blessings of the patriarchy uh, and the double inheritance of his father's goods and all other privileges of the firstborn. <coughs> In the Greek, uh, the word for the rights of the firstborn is P-R-O-T-O-T-A-K-I-O-I-A, whatever they how you pronounce it. As firstborn, he was honored above all other children. He became the patriarch of the death of his father 
and he was named the ruler of the clan. All this he traded for one bowl of soup. The term birthright will be significant in later verses in this chapter, for all believers are called God's firstborn. Verse 23 says so. All of God's children are firstborn and heirs of God. The writer insists that his readers not make the same mistake as Esau did. Under no circumstances sell out your birthright because as Christians you are the doubly honored. You have the privilege of being the firstborn children of God. And therefore you occupy that position of honor in the presence of God. But just as Esau sold his physical birthright, you could sell your spiritual birthright. As the story goes, Esau tried to get his patriarchal father to repent and restore to him his birthright. Isaac had already given the the patriarchal blessing to under his brother Jacob. Esau continued his pleading, but to no avail. What was done was done. Esau burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. And then Esau asked, haven't you received, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? And Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you and made all his relatives, uh, his uh, servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. And so what can I possibly do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too. Then Esau wept aloud. The terrible consequences of profane sensuality cannot be avoided. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Galatians 6, verse 7. Let's stop right there. Time's up. <coughs> what is today? The 14th? 17th. 17th.